MSW Media. On Friday night, federal prosecutors filed a sentencing memorandum stating that Donald Trump directed his former attorney, Michael Cohen, to commit federal crimes. On the same day, special counsel Robert Mueller filed his own sentencing memorandum outlining the information provided to him by Cohen, including significant efforts to develop a relationship with the Russian government, including during the presidential campaign. In a separate filing, Mueller detailed all of the lies told to him by former Trump campaign chair Paul Manafort, including Manafort's direct contacts with Trump administration officials after he was indicted. What do these latest revelations mean for the Trump presidency? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, an in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, a WGN radio host who will join us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, you know, this this is usually a weekly podcast. Lately, it seems like we have to have a new podcast every other day. You're keeping me busy, man. <laughs> you know, uh, Robert Mueller and all these and these other federal prosecutors are keeping us uh, both busy. Uh, yesterday, I had all this work to do for clients. I was in my office so late, uh, be, in part because um, I was, you know, taking breaks to tweet and read these filings. Uh, it is a busy time. And it was a very significant day, uh, a day that I think we should remember for some time. And what I wonder about is the lasting significance um, of yesterday's revelations. Because in my mind, if those revelations came in a prior era during the 70s or 80s, uh, I I think they, they very well could spell the end for a presidency. Um, and it'll be interesting to see the effect of those in this era. Do you think then that the difference being social media and the president's ability to manipulate public opinion to sort of because you talk a lot in your piece in Time magazine about expectations that people, uh, you know, think that uh, Mueller's going to have all these revelations in his report and also about how uh, President Trump is able to manipulate people and say constantly asking, where's the collusion? Where's the collusion? So when that doesn't come forward, you know, every time Mueller has a report, it's not there because it's something else. It's not necessarily what he's doing. Well, look, you know, when I wrote that piece in Time magazine, they told me you need to write a fairly short piece that will be evergreen, that will always that will that will kind of a big highlight. They wanted my big thoughts about things. Um, And the reason I wrote about about this issue of expectations is I think they're very important because ultimately, whether this is the, you know, the I get asked all the time, is this the end for the Trump presidency? Is is Trump over? I get I get all these messages constantly asking me that. And I'm very cagey about that because I don't know. And a lot of that depends on public perception and in the political uh, dynamics. 
And I think expectations are important. You know, I remember uh, many years ago when Bill Clinton came, what was it, second or third in New Hampshire, but called it a victory, right? There is a sense that if expectations are low enough, even if you don't win, like, hey, that's great. And uh, so I think expectations matter. And on the progressive side of things, I think the expectation has become that Mueller is going to produce some report that has all these exhibits and evidence that are going to outline this massive conspiracy in which Donald Trump and Vladimir Putin and all these people are involved that essentially, they, you know, Donald Trump committed, uh, and I'll put this in air quotes, treason of some kind. And, you know, that's a very high bar for a prosecutor to meet. In fact, it's the sort it's not even the sort of thing that prosecutors, which is what Mueller is, um, would do. Uh, it's not it's not in their DNA of how they would do things. And I think let's look at the the news last night. Last night, I just read when I was writing the intro that literally we had federal prosecutors from the Justice Department saying the president told somebody to commit crimes and directed his subordinate to commit crimes. That's a big deal. You would think. You would think. And it is a big deal. But my point is, as you point out, because Everyone is expecting, you know, I had people asking me last night, well, does this have anything to do with collusion? Well, no, but does that matter? Don't we care about the, whether or not the president is following the laws or is he committing, if he's committing crimes or not? Don't we, don't we still care about that? I worry that it can take the air out of some of these, these balloons that will come out or these big revelations that will come out. And, and I think, you know, you're asking what the cause was. I think part of it may be the expectations by people who are critical of Trump. But on the other side of it, one thing that has really skewed the debate is that usually when you have um, a debate about various issues, there's two sides to it. And you might have, you know, one side saying, well, Obamacare is great. And the other side saying Obamacare isn't so great uh, or is bad. And there's various reasons why. And maybe we we think, you know, one side is good and one side's not so good in terms of their views on it. But they're very they're kind of in the weeds talking about the policy. Here, what I see is on the other side of, you know, I I try to in legal analysis here, try to ground it, ground the legal analysis. And there are people who have, I will say, runaway expectations that are legal folks that I don't think are necessarily grounded in things. But there aren't a lot, there isn't a lot of two-sidedness there because there's this whole group of conservatives or Trump supporters some of them are legal analysts. Some of them are former FBI folks, whoever, or former law enforcement folks who are essentially saying things that are so untethered to reality and so off, um, off in la-la land right. that they, can't, they don't engage with the rest of the world in having those conversations. In other words, if there's a legal analyst who looks at what happened yesterday and is like, oh, this is great for the president, uh, there's nothing, he, he's totally cleared by all of this, this is nothing, there's nothing here, that's so absurd on its face that it's impossible for me to have a conversation with that person or for that person to actually engage in a debate on these issues in any way. You mean the same words that the president used himself in his tweets? Well, you know, it is it is interesting to me that you have somebody who clearly has no idea what he's talking about uh, on these subjects, which i.e. the president of the United States, or um, I would say if he does know what he's talking about, he's deliberately lying, and it's who knows which of the two that is. Um but, you know, could be one, could be the other. Um, and then it's getting parroted by people who should know better 
uh, and instead of being, they're just completely uncritical in parroting that point. So the reason, you know, the reason I even bring all of this up is I just want folks to understand that as we're getting to the point now where, you know, I will say for the first time, I don't, I don't really know what's going to happen with Trump's presidency. Um, but, you know, things are, the, 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 the problem levels for Trump are starting to reach higher and higher levels. Um, things are starting to get really problematic for them on a legal front for Trump and his and his crew. You know, I think it's going to be important for us to keep our eyes on the ball and try to understand what's going on in a level headed way and not feed into expectations that in many ways Trump has played into. Because he's grabbed onto this no collusion and sure. stuff. He's he loves the fact that the bar is set so high, and the you know the statements from him and and others yesterday I think reflected well, that. Well, including uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, where she said we didn't learn anything we didn't already know, which of course a lot of people are like, oh, so you're saying you already knew the president had directed his lawyer to make have these meetings or to, to make these payments? Yeah, it's sort of interesting. I mean, essentially the implication of her statement is. We already knew that Trump directed Michael Cohen to commit these campaign finance crimes. Right. And so big deal. And essentially, I mean, you could read it to be a concession that he did, in fact, direct him to commit those crimes, which is astounding. Uh, you know, that is something where journalists really need to follow up and ask those questions. I hope they do. Um, and our, our prior podcast about journalists being limited in what they can ask uh, I think will come into play there. It'll be interesting to see if Sarah Huckabee Sanders uh, gives journalists the opportunity to ask that question. So let me say that we're going to be bringing in our guest, Neil Katio, mm -hmm. and he, he's been a guest on our, on our show before in a different context. So, you know, previously he was talking about uh, uh, ju now Justice Brett Kavanaugh because Neil in, in the Obama administration was the acting solicitor general. That is the head lawyer for the United States before the U.S. Supreme Court. That is a pretty big deal. And he he's argued as, ma as many Supreme Court cases as anybody. I mean, just dozens of Supreme Court cases, which is very rare. So he had a lot of experience talking about the Supreme Court. Today, you know, we'll be able to talk to him a lot about some of the constitutional issues that um, a lot, many of you have questions about because Patty has been collecting all these questions you've left uh, on Twitter. I, I wanted to just copy your entire feed because everyone had great questions, you know, and, and thoughts and concerns. And of course, it's the holiday season, so everyone has visions of President Trump behind bars dancing in their heads. Oh my God! So, yeah, a lot of that. <laughs> I don't. I and and we we're gonna like I said, we're gonna be very grounded in this conversation. Yes. So so Neil can answer a lot of the thorny constitutional questions, but also he was the guy who wrote the special counsel regulations that uh, Mueller is operating under. So he's going to have a lot of great questions. It'll be a different kind of conversation because instead of me and another former prosecutor like like Joyce or Ken. Uh, like we had recently, we're going to have somebody with a different perspective. Wonderful. So let yeah. So let's bring in Neil. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you for coming back. It's great to be back. Hello, hello. So uh, we had obviously a very big night. Uh, la this is this is being recorded Saturday morning. So last night, um, and the I think the biggest bombshell, and certainly the one that you and I tweeted about and generated a lot of discussion about was Michael Cohen's um, direction of, or excuse me, 
the fact that that the the federal prosecutors in New York stated and concluded that Donald Trump directed Michael Cohen to commit a crime. Yeah, so there were three filings made yesterday, two about Michael Cohen and one from the Southern District of New York, the prosecutors there, the federal prosecutors, the other by Robert Mueller, both about, you know, what Michael Cohen should be sentenced to. And then there was a separate filing by Mueller with respect to Paul Manafort and his breach of the cooperation agreement. And I think it's fair to say exactly, Renato, you know, I think the big bombshells, you know, they're all have bombshells, but the biggest news came from the Southern District of New York filing. And yes, I think you and I were probably going you know, uh, messaging each other within 30 seconds or a minute of that thing coming out because we both had isolated really the kind of key thing in there, which is really not about Michael Cohen. It's about Donald Trump, because when you take and you take the sentencing memo and in particular three excerpts out of it, you put them together, you really come to the conclusion that the prosecutors, these federal prosecutors, have concluded that Donald Trump directed the commission of a very serious felony of campaign finance violations. And I can spell that out if you'd like or, um, you know, pause right here. Well, why don't, yeah, why don't you pause? Because one thing I want to give listeners an understanding is that that the filings that came out yesterday um, are different than, like, for instance, what you or I write, might write on Twitter. In other words, you know, when th- something comes out on Twitter, uh, I give everybody. I, I know that a lot of a lot of folks who read my Twitter feed are like, "Wow, this is such careful analysis, and it's so nuanced and uh, or precise." And probably compared to the stuff you read on Twitter, it is okay. And that's because I've had many years of training uh, of be- at being precise and being careful in my thinking. And I'm I know you're the same way, Neil, when you make legal judgments about things. But, but those are essentially off-the-cuff comments. When something is filed like this, in a case of this, the, the cases of, of this, the, that have this level of importance and attention, the amount of wordsmithing and care that goes into drafting those documents cannot be understated. Uh, I, I bet that there were literally dozens, if not hundreds, of reads of each of these documents before they were filed by multiple people. Uh, and in the Southern District of New York, the head lawyer working on that is Rob Kazami, who I, I've met. I, at one point, I interviewed with him many years ago. You know, he's a, he's a, uh, you know, a, a, ver- a guy with a very uh, s- you know, stellar reputation. And he, you know, his name was not going to be on that, making those sort of statements about uh, the president of the United States unless they were very carefully thought about. And, and wordsmith, and they felt, and he and, and the people working for him felt very confident about the uh, words that they were saying. Would you, would you yeah, agree with that? 100%. So, you know, when I was in the Solicitor General's office, any filing we'd make would go through really uh, hundreds of eyes reviewing and, you know, dozens of drafts. And that would be true for anything Kazami files in any case. He's a very thorough careful prosecutor, but particularly in a case of this magnitude, every word is going to be poured over. And as you were discussing yesterday online, um, it's it's not just that this is some statement of, oh, I kind of think here's what happened or something like that. When a prosecutor puts this in writing to a court, they really have to have strong grounds to believe that these accusations are true um, because they carry 
so many consequences for individuals' reputations and the like. So it's not just the wordsmithing and, and that went on in yesterday's filing. It's also that they must have developed a very extensive factual record to corroborate what they are saying, in particular when they start isolating President Trump's wrongdoing. Um, that's something you'd have to be, you know, incredibly careful and circumspect about. Uh, exactly right. So as I did talk about uh, yesterday on Twitter, as you're alluding to, what, what what what's going on here, the reason that prosecutors made that the, that statement in the midst of the Michael Cohen sentencing memorandum is that the judge is required by law to consider all of the nature and circumstances of Michael Cohen's offenses. And since two of his offenses were these campaign finance uh, offenses, one of the, the circumstances of it is that he was directed to do so by the man who later became the president of the United States. And he pointed, Cohen pointed to that, and it really is up to prosecutors um, to tell the judge, you know, what does the evidence show? And what that statement meant is that, and it's very, you can, I think, tell very clearly from the wording of it, that they, that they concluded by at least a preponderance of the evidence, and I'll explain what that means in a minute, that Donald Trump directed him to commit those crimes. And in addition to that, they cite what's called the pre-sentence investigation report, which is a report created by, the US, by U.S. probation, by the probation department, separate arm of the government. And they, the probation department clearly concluded the same thing. That, that Trump had directed Cohen to commit those crimes based on the evidence before the probation department. So what that means is that, that at sentencing, the standard is what I, what I alluded to earlier, preponderance of the evidence. That's like 51%, like more likely than not. That means something. And if I, you know, if the federal prosecutor told me, well, we, we have evidence and it concluded that it's more likely than not that you committed a federal crime, uh, I would be in big trouble and I would be running for the hills and getting my own defense attorney at that point. Uh, it's a very serious thing. Now, that does not necessarily mean that they would have evidence to prove his guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. And we can talk about that um, and the difficulties there. But it, it is a big statement, and I think what I would say, and I want this is why I want to tie this back to what you were saying a minute ago, Neil. If this was like a close call, or what they didn't have a if they didn't have a lot there, I I think they would have been more cautious in how they worded it. In other words, certainly if they just had the say so of Michael Cohen, they and that was all this was, they would have worded it differently. They would have said Cohen asserts this. Um, or, you know, maybe they would have said, you know, Cohen asserts this, so we have no evidence contradicting him at the, you know, or something like that. They could have, if it was just Cohen say so, they would have definitely worded it differently. If they had just a little bit of corroborating, corroborating evidence, um, but not a lot, you know, I think they would have hedged it more. Uh, the fact that they came out and they said it in such a clear way, and they used the way that they worded the statements essentially said, you know, it was, you know, there was this word and in there. Essentially, Trump directed him and as noted by, you know, and as, you know, Michael Cohen himself admits, you know, Trump directed him to commit the crime. Uh, it, it struck me that they that they felt pretty confident that based on the evidence that they had, that this was the conclusion. Yeah, I 100 percent agree. And so, you know, look, if this were if Trump were any federal employee or in any corporation, 
if that filing memo of 30 pages were filed and said about that person, that person would be out of a job. Um, and, you know, this is an accusation that a, you know, someone committed, it directed the commission of a very serious felony. And you're absolutely right. It couldn't be just Michael Cohen say so. That would have never been enough for the Southern District of New York. And just to walk your listeners through this, um, you know, the three kind of things I would isolate in the filing yesterday. The first is at page 11, and this is the line you were just referring to, Renato, and it reads as follows. Quote, in particular, and as Cohen himself has now admitted, with respect to both payments, he acted in coordination with and at the direction of individual number one, citing the PSR at paragraphs 41 to 45. So that is not just relying on Cohen. It's very clear they're relying on other things. And then that that independent office of the federal government has also so concluded. So that's the first thing. Then on the next page, you have this line, quote, the agreement's principal purpose was to suppress woman number one's story, that's Stormy Daniels' story, so as to prevent the story from influencing the election, influencing the election. So they're taking off the table the argument that, oh, this was done for personal reasons or something like that, which are arguments that have always you know, been pretty weak because uh, you know, these uh, affairs had happened, you know, a long, long time ago, and it's only all of a sudden magically on the eve of the election that the women are being paid off. So, you know, the connection to the campaign is obvious and palpable, and the prosecutors are saying that. And then lastly, it point to page 23, where the prosecutors make clear that this isn't some minor technical thing. They say this, quote, struck a blow to one of the core goals of the federal campaign finance laws, transparency, and that Michael Cohen, quote, sought to influence the election from the shadows by orchestrating secret and illegal payments to silence the two women. And so what they're doing here is saying, you know, sometimes campaign finance, finance violations can be technical and irrelevant. These ones are really serious, and these prosecutors don't come out and say it. But when you think about it, over the whole history of campaign finance regulation, can we really come up with a single payment that was more consequential and a violation of the laws than these two payments that are alleged here? I mean, these may be the most significant campaign contributions in the history of the United States. They very well may have swung the election, um, and that is you know, not something that prosecutors can turn a blind eye to. You know, it's interesting, Neil, I would say for a couple a couple reasons, a couple reasons that kind of a couple reactions to that. You know, first of all, one thing I think is worth noting is that, you know, campaign finance violations are rarely prosecuted as crimes because at times it's difficult to um, prove them, you know, prove beyond a reasonable doubt that uh, the, the people have the requisite mental state. So this is actually an exception rather than the rule, first of all. Second of all, I will note that, you know, it's been interesting to see the reaction, and I talked about this a little bit before you joined us, uh, from the, I would say the, I, would, I used to say conservative side, I don't know how conservative it is anymore, but the right, uh, and a lot of their anal analysis of this. And, you know, one thing I, I keyed in on is, you know, Britt Hume called this like a campaign finance violation, as opposed to a felony, uh, which, of course, it is. Michael Cohen's going to prison, in part, because of these payments. Um, 
And it seems to me that perhaps of the very rare crowd that isn't just on the right saying, oh, nothing happened, nothing to see here, the people that are actually engaging with it, they're trying to minimize these crimes and, and what, what they are. Right. So, look, I mean, I think you're absolutely right to say campaign finance violations are rarely prosecuted. But one reason for that is we don't have campaign finance violations at the presidential level of this magnitude. This is not some you know minor thing in which someone writes $2,800 instead of $2,700. This is a scheme, a concerted scheme over a long period to take a lot of money and pay off particular individuals. So that's, I think, one important piece, piece of this, which is, you know, this isn't some technical thing. The other thing is, is it's not clear to me, and this, Renato, is your expertise more than mine, um, that it's only a campaign finance violation. I suspect there may be pretty severe tax consequences, too, because President Trump was getting effectively a, you know, income in kind over this period. Um, and, um, and whether or not you know, it bio, you know, mens rea for campaign finance violations, which doesn't strike me as very hard to prove in this case alone because of Trump. Um, but what, regardless of that, um, he certainly knew that he was getting the benefit of these payments. I suspect they were not declared um, to the IRS. Of course, you know, fam- Trump has famously refused to show anyone his tax returns. And one reason why presidents do so on the campaign trail is so that we're not stuck in this situation years later in which president has p- committed felonies um, or it looks like he's committed felonies. So, you know, I don't think that it makes sense to just think about this as campaign finance. Yeah, I mean, I think there there certainly may be other crimes here. One that comes to mind for me is uh, Trump had to make financial disclosures. He uh, affirmed those under penalty of perjury. And the, his, his staff originally tried to get away with him not signing under penalty of perjury his first financial disclosure statement. And ultimately, he had to do so. He was, he, he was forced to do so, and he did. You know, to me, in that financial disclosure, there was no discussion of, you know, any of the loans to Cohen or payments to Cohen or any of that stuff. So that would be, to me, the, a very obvious problem. And that happened after he was president of the United States. So if I was a prosecutor looking at this, that might be the first place I would start because I already know about it. Um, and there may be other things, too. You know, one thing that is that the Southern District of New York and by the way, Neil and I keep using this term Southern District of New York. That's just the um, the the New York federal prosecutor's office to handle this. Um, but they, they those prosecutors noted that the proceeds that Cohen used were proceeds he, he got through essentially through bank fraud uh, with making false statements to the bank uh, through his home equity line of credit. So. There may be more to all of this, um, and there is, by the way, an ongoing investigation of the Trump Organization's piece here, because um, if you look at the original plea by Cohen, he talks about the involvement of Trump Organization uh, folks in approving him being reimbursed, and there's a bunch of false statements in their financial records uh, relating to those, sta- to those um, payments to him, and it sure looked to me, like from reading it, that if you read the language carefully that a Trump family member had to be involved in approving this from a trust perspective because Trump placed his his organization into a trust when he became president. So there's definitely more to come there 
from where I sit, uh, Neil, and I, I alluded to this in the last um, uh, podcast, I viewed this investigation to be a, a bigger problem for Trump than the Mueller investigation, and a, just from a purely legal perspective. Um, and I, I still feel that way after what happened yesterday. Well, I think it's hard to know because, you know, the, the Mueller pieces, not as much has come out. There's a lot of stuff that's redacted, a lot of stuff that may be national security information sensitive and so on. So I think that's a little more of a black box. But so I wouldn't I'd hesitate to draw any comparisons between the two in that sense. But I do think um, that the Cohen investigation is becoming increasingly, increasingly very, very dangerous for the president. And one of the reasons I mentioned the tax implications is precisely what you were just putting your finger on. It implicates the Trump organization. And now there's other allegations, as you point out, bank fraud and the like, which also may be there. And why is that important? Well, it's important for its own sake, you know, that Donald Trump's own uh, company was engaged in crimes. But more importantly, you know, prosecutors have a tool that is available to them called flipping. The idea is that you throw the book at someone, you say you've committed a crime, and, you know, we're going to give you a lighter sentence if you can give us information about other people. And Trump has been campaigning against flipping for a while with Michael Cohen as his particular target now. It used to also be Paul Manafort, but Manafort looks almost like a double agent, double flipping in some sense. Um, so, um, yeah. You know, so um, so that acrobatic stunt is its own thing. But um, but, you know, I think that there are people in the Trump organization and in particular the CFO, Weiselbrod, who very well may look at this whole situation and say, you know, gosh, darn it. I'm looking at a pretty serious jail sentence here. Um, I know where all the bodies are buried because, you know, it's pretty clear with Trump, you know, um, he just hopes not to get caught. This is not like, you know, Mother Teresa, um, someone who colors within the lines. This is someone who, uh, you know, does not have the kind of traditional respect for the law that we come to associate with U.S. government officials. And so, you know, to the extent that I'm right about that, and Weisselbrot had a bird-eye view as to what Trump has been doing for years, that uh, could be pretty uh, significant information to prosecutors. I think that's right. One thing I would say, uh, just to help listeners understand um, the way that I look at legal problems, I get questions all the time, like, how could people get away with this or that or the other thing? There's essentially a range of you know, legal problems that you have are generally not an on-off switch. Either, oh, I committed the crime, I didn't commit the crime, I broke the law, I didn't break the law. A lot of times there's all these shades of gray there. And what I would say is that many companies operate um, in the United States within some shade of gray. In other words, they think that a particular practice might have generate legal consequences for them. And the question is what level of comfort they can have after talking to a sophisticated lawyer like Neil or me uh, about what the risks are and the legal problems that they may have. And so one level of those legal problems are what I'll call civil problems where you could get sued and you may have to pay money. Then, of course, criminal is like a whole other set of problems. And, you know, most, uh, I would say, the vast majority of, of legitimate companies in the United States talk to lawyers like me or Neil. They try to operate in an area where there's some level of what I'll call civil risk, potentially. Um, they try to, to lessen that risk as much as possible. And they try to stay far outside, uh, below the realm where there may be potential criminal consequences. 
you know, when with with with, you know, we were talking about the Trump organization and, and coloring within the lines. You know, really what's happening, you, you at least from what I see, is you have an organization that's willing to take on much more risk than a typical company and get much closer to that criminal line. And, the, you know, the, the, no lawyer, um, no matter how good they are, and, and certainly, you know, you're one of the best, Neil, but no, no lawyer can possibly predict how a court is going to see things or know all the facts surrounding something. So at times, if you're trying to stay where you have massive civil liability but no criminal liability, you could potentially be over the line and get yourself in a spot where you've, you've, you've committed crimes. Yeah, that's 100 percent right. I mean, I think what you and I do in our day jobs is advise companies all the time on how to stay within those lines and what the risks are um, and so on. And, and here you have an organization which, you know, like let's to take some of the Russia stuff. I mean, Trump was negotiating with the Russian government for years um, and Americans didn't know about it. And Trump hit all that. And it, those facts are now coming out because of Michael Flynn and sometimes Paul Manafort when he was telling the truth and the like. Um, you know, these are pretty serious things. And, um, uh, you know, it's not just as a matter of federal crimes, but also just imagine the consequences for blackmail that the Russians have had now on the president for two years. They've known that Trump lied to the American people during the campaign and said, I didn't have dealings with Russia and the like, when they knew very well that he did. They were there. They were in the room. And this wasn't just, you know, Russian corporate folks like the Russian head of Marriott's equivalent, Marriott Hotel's equivalent or something. These were direct dealings with the Kremlin itself. Um, and, you know, so you, you, the, the consequences for our national security are quite, you know, dramatic. And again, you know, you were mentioning some of the um, pushback on the right saying, oh, this is minor stuff. This is not minor. I mean, this is the Russian government potentially having very serious compromising information on the president of the United States and the Trump organization. And let's talk about that, because, you know, we haven't talked as much about the Mueller filing regarding Michael Cohen. And, you know, that is a filing, I also believe, on its own in another era in the 70s or 80s or some other time, if that had, that filing had been made against another presidential administration, that would essentially, I would say, be the end or the beginning of the end for that administration. I mean, it is it, it's not from a legal perspective. It's not as problematic on its face because it just doesn't have all the connecting the dots that that something in the, the, the New York filing had where it just comes out and says that Trump directed the commission of a crime. But it, there's a lot of really problematic stuff in there. And that's, I think, what you were alluding to a moment ago. Exactly. So, look, we don't know. And you're absolutely right to use the phrase connecting the dots. So we don't know. You know, the, the filings yesterday don't connect all the dots to Trump himself. Um, but they do suggest something pretty devastating and a picture that's being painted. And we're going to I think the rest of the picture is going to unfold in the next weeks um, uh, and we'll see exactly what it is. And I think has a bit miscalculated, and this goes to the point from your earlier podcast, he's been spending so much time trying to denigrate Mueller and, you know, the so-called angry Democrats who work for him. And by the way, the only evidence that there are Democrats, even on Mueller's staff, is that they've given some campaign contributions to the Clintons in the past, which um, so too had 
Donald Trump's old children, own children. So, you know, I don't think that makes them angry Democrats. And the idea that Mueller is either angry or a Democrat is just about ridiculous. So, um, uh, so you know, that was always laughable on its own terms. But nonetheless, I mean, I think the most the most powerful thing yesterday comes from the fact that it wasn't Mueller. It was Trump's own Justice Department, that Southern District of New York office that we've been talking about so much, who's pointing the finger directly at President Trump. Now, the Mueller filings yesterday are of a different ilk. I mean, the one on Michael Cohen is interesting because they are actually much more lenient toward him, and they say that he has given important information on national security matters and the Russia investigation, which is at the core of the Mueller investigation. And so what they say in that document is, you know, don't sentence him to any extra time for these sets of crimes with respect to Russia and the like. The sentence should be concurrent, which means served at the same time as whatever else he gets for the bank fraud and for the campaign finance violations. The Southern District obviously took a very different stance saying, look, you didn't really cooperate until you really had to. And, um, uh, you know, you, um, you didn't wasn't as forthcoming even when you did cooperate. Um, so, you know, there were some pretty interesting things in the Mueller pieces of filings yesterday. I think the most significant to me were that Cohen continued to have contact with the White House in 2017 and 2018, and so did Manafort. I mean, there's an astounding line in there that said that Manafort was in touch with the senior White House official as late as, I think, May of 2018, um, you know, which is a pretty striking thing. After that point, he'd been indicted and was getting ready for trial. Yeah, indicted in two different courts uh, and a very serious crime. So what you're both saying is that they may have both been sharing information about what Mueller was asking them. So informing the White House staff and, and their lawyers about what the investigation or the direction of the investigation. That, that's one possibility, Patty. But I, I would go, I, I guess my initial thought was something different, which is both of these men have attorneys and at least, and, and their attorneys were in touch with Trump's team. And certainly in the case of Manafort's lawyers, they were notoriously now, as we know, kind of engaged in shenanigans with Trump's team. So if you had something you wanted to say to the Trump camp, you, the, 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 the most obvious way to do that would be for, let's say, Manafort to tell his lawyers and have his lawyers pass something on to Trump's team. Because there you have a, a potential common interest privilege. Certainly at that point, they had a much stronger case to make that there's common interest privilege there. And it's just a, it's a straightforward way of doing it. You're not going to get monitored by the government and so on and so forth. For Manafort to go around his lawyers and have direct contact with somebody in the Trump administration tells me that there's something he did not want his lawyers to know. And so he was either engaging in some sort of crime, like he may have been asking somebody to have a witness, to be engaged in more witness tampering. He wanted to try to hide something. He wanted to send a signal to the White House about something he was going to not say um, or something like that. Uh, That was my initial reaction. And potentially with Cohen, it may have been, you know, coordinating lies. You know, we know that Cohen lied to Congress and he... He said that he did that in, in consultation with, uh, you know, Trump's lawyers and White House officials. It may be other types of lies or, or crimes or other misdeeds that he did not want to talk to his lawyers about. Well, a different way of putting the point is this. I think, you know, we as Americans, when we see an investigation of the president and his campaign chair 
Paul Manafort and his national security advisor, Michael Flynn. I think we're used to thinking about that investigation and all their lawyers and reactions as being pretty much on the up and up and the kind of way that, you know, corporations, you know, senior prospective members of society view these things. But I think that's absolutely the wrong lens. I mean, the right lens to view the behavior of these folks is literally the Sopranos and to think about it that way. And, um, you know, these people are not behaving the way, you know, law abiding or even people close to law abiding who like to butt up against the line. This is a whole separate operation. And some of it occurs in secret, like these Manafort, you know, secret communiques that took place, in, you know, in May of 2018. Some of it's out in the open. I mean, it was just last week that President Trump was tweeting about how Donald Trump, excuse me, how, how Michael Cohen was a weak man and the book should be thrown at him. But, you know, Roger Stone holding firm is tough and, you know, effectively holding out the promise of a pardon. Um, and that's what led people like George Conway to tweet the witness tampering statutes and um, suggest that uh, federal felonies had been occurring right under our noses. And so, look, I mean, uh, this is not the way uh, ordinary people behave. There is something really wrong, rotten in Denmark here. Yeah, I will say, uh, you know, a couple of reactions to that, Neil. First of all, as to the point you're making with witness tampering, you know, I have long said that I, I concluded based on just the public evidence that Donald Trump obstructed justice. I wrote a piece in January detailing all of that. That was a great piece. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And since that time, the evidence has just gotten more overwhelming. You know, I wrote a piece in New York, in the New York Times when Trump, Trump had a tweet where he attacked Jeff Sessions for essentially failing to quash the indictments of two Republican congressmen and getting upset that, that they would lose those seats because these criminals had been indicted. Um, it, it blows my mind that there was not more outrage about that because that is that is corrupt. I mean, that is just straight up corrupt to say that your attorney general should be doing something to interfere with or stop the indictment of people who, you know, there's substantial evidence of committed federal yeah. crimes. I mean, absolutely. I mean, there are precedent for, you know, leaders to do things like that and use the political system both to go after their enemies and to quash the indictments of their supporters. It's just that those precedents happen to be, you know, African nations that are just, you know, you know, don't have rules of law systems and things like that. To have that happen in the United States of America with its rich tradition of the rule of law is astounding. Yeah, you know, it's funny. I made a comment on Twitter at that time that um, I had never, you know, I had never in my life seen a public official speak in those terms. It had been criminals spoke in those terms fairly frequently. If I was, you know, prosecuting a drug cartel uh, folks, people like that would talk that way, but not um, a public official. And I got some uh, private messages from journalists in Chicago saying, that, well, you know, we have a lot of, you know, we've, I think, famously had corruption in Illinois, um, and my, my former office prosecuted a lot of it, but they even joked that when these sort of infamous people in, in Illinois politics uh, were committing corrupt misdeeds, they would say publicly um, all the right things. It was just privately that they'd make these comments. You know, Rod Blagojevich and some of these others would never publicly come out and say, that, you know, people shouldn't flip and that we, you know, try to engage in witness tampering. They would all do that behind the scenes. 
Right. Well, as a Chicago boy myself, you know, I, I know of what to speak. <laughs> but, uh, what? But, uh, um, but, you know, I guess I'd say, you know, it's it's not just Trump doing this with respect to, um, you know, uh, dangling the pardons and the like. He's also been on this long campaign against flipping itself and saying how, you know, how it should be outlawed and things like that, which is you know, pretty much one of the more essential practices of our criminal justice system. I mean, I wrote a whole Yale Law Journal article about this on how our system is built on flipping because law enforcement you know, needs to get window into secret communications of criminals. It's not like, you know, criminals tend not to write things down for good reason. So you need to get access to their information, what's the information in their head somehow. And here Trump is, you know, basically talking the way a mobster does, like, how dare you rat me out? And, you know, there'll be consequences to those who do. Um, and, you know, just leaving aside the implications on the investigation of Trump, the investigations for law enforcement more generally are very dramatic. I wanted to ask both of you, because uh, Renato, you mentioned that if this had happened in the 70s or 80s, this would spe- you spell the end of the administration. And, uh, and Neil, you mentioned that, uh, you, know, that this is a, you know, this is a big deal and that the president hopes to not get caught, right? Well, it seems like he's somewhat caught, but what, what is the difference now between the, you know, what happened with Watergate? Is it because there was bipartisan, bipartisanship efforts to impeach the president? Is that the significance? Well, I just, I guess, first of all, I think, you know, we're not even 12 hours in, uh, maybe we're a little more than 12, but very few hours into uh, the postscript of this filing. So we just don't, you know, we don't know exactly where things will develop. But I think that there are a few different paths that folks should be watching out for. One is, can the Justice Department actually do anything? Can the Southern District or can Robert Mueller bring an indictment? against a sitting president. Now, there are a couple of uh, Office of Legal Counsel opinions. That's the entity at the Justice Department that handles a lot of kind of complicated constitutional issues in which the department has said you cannot indict a sitting president, do not indict and try a sitting president. And so ordinarily, that would be department policy. However, those writings don't really distinguish between indictment and trial. Um, what they say is you could have a president who would be, you know, who's got to do the nation's business and you wouldn't want, you know, a trial to distract them from doing that. And the, you know, there are a couple of reasons why that might not apply in the circumstance. Number one, Trump is famously not exactly busy on his daily schedule. So, you know, he's actually got a lot of time to defend um, himself uh, in court. So, you know, the kind of, you know, ways in which past presidents have done their job are pretty different than this one. So that's number one. You mean watching Fox all day doesn't constitute doing his job? (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then, you know, the other thing is, is that, and and Walter Dellinger and Ted Olson, both former solicitors general, have pointed this out, that trial is the distracting thing, but indictments can still happen um, because an indictment is just the accusation. And so they have said, well, maybe you want to put off the trial, but the uh, but you still should be able to bring a formal 
uh, legal action against a sitting president. So that's number one um, that I think we'll have to keep our eye on. Can number we, can, two, can is, we move on? Before, can we can we just break that down for a minute before you move on? Sure. To number two, because I have gotten a lot of questions about this issue of whether a sitting president can be indicted. And just so listeners understand, you know, this is something I can talk about, but Neil is more, much more, as I explained earlier, of an expert on these issues. Can you explain to folks why it is that there are a lot of very intelligent people who have concluded that a sitting president can't be indicted or potentially even, or let's say can't, can't be tried? Yeah, so I've taught this now, I think, 21 times in my constitutional law class. And the example that I think gets people the most, gets, gets their mind around it is this. Imagine it's 1862 or 1863, and some prosecutor in South Carolina decides to uh, trump up uh, charges against Abraham Lincoln and haul him into court. Um, you wouldn't want a prosecutor to be able to undo the nation's will in that election of Abraham Lincoln being the uh, uh, being the president. And so, you know, in similarly, you could imagine other circumstances. You know, you could transplant it to Obama in 2012 or whatever. Um, you know, pick your favorite example. But the idea is that you know the, the presidency is a unique. Um, a unique office. It is the one position for whom the entire nation votes one way or the other. And so you have to be very circumspect before giving a prosecutor the power to commandeer the president's time and defend himself at trial. So to me, that's the best argument. And I think it's a pretty weighty argument, um, particularly when you have an ordinary presidency, someone who is, you know, spending their days carrying out the nation's business. But I do think that Dellinger and Olson are onto something when they say that's really about the trial itself. It's not about whether or not an indictment can can lie. And, you know, in America, we do have, I think, as perhaps our most foundational principle, that no person is above the law. And that was at the heart of the Paula Jones case in 1997, where the Supreme Court unanimously decided a civil lawsuit could proceed. And so, um, by, you know, the reasoning of that case, and then particular emphasis on no one being above the law, I think very well could suggest that a sitting president could be indicted. They just couldn't be tried until they leave office. Yeah. And one of the consequences here, another, like I'd say the number one question I was asked yesterday, both on Twitter and also by lots of people texting me and calling me, uh, including, by the way, I mean, a lot of people who may be able to do something about it. Um, questions about the statute of limitations uh, for these offenses that that the campaign finance offenses. And, you know, just so everyone knows, typically the, the in almost every circumstance, the statute of limitations for federal crimes is five years. So in this case, uh, since these payments occurred in late 2016, you'll be looking at 2021, late 2021 to be the, the statute of limitations. Now, if there's a conspiracy or a scheme, the clock starts running at the last uh, the last action taken to, to move that scheme or that conspiracy forward. So that can extend the clock. But that's what you're talking about in, uh, in terms of statute of limitations. So one one important distinction that uh, in what Neil is saying is his point is you could indict someone and not have the trial until later. Um, that's important because you could imagine a president who there there has committed a crime and let's say there's overwhelming evidence of that crime, 
but the statute of limitations is going to run in a year or two years. The indictment stops the, the deals with the statute of limitations problem. Once the indictment is issued, there's no more statute of limitations ah. issue. And so even if the trial occurs years later, then there's the at least the, there's you don't have the person in a, in a formal way above the law. Now, I will say if you do in that example I gave, if the president is indicted in year one and ends up serving for a full eight years, you could have a lot of witnesses losing their memory, um, you know, or, or, or passing or other issues that that occur over those eight years that may make it hard to have a trial that far into the future. But I will say that in federal criminal law, we have trials of things that happen in the in, dis, in the distant past on a fairly regular basis. So that doesn't really bother me all that much. I am just yeah. So go ahead. I was, I was just going to say that I think there's a much cleaner argument about the statute of limitations, which is it can't be simultaneously true that a sitting president can't be indicted and the statute of limitations runs the way it does in an ordinary case. Both those propositions can't be true because that would effectively immunize so much activity from law enforcement altogether. So if a sitting president can't be indicted and tried, a necessary corollary of that argument just has to be that the statute of limitations is what we call told, which means, you know, held um, in suspense, um, because you can't really allow someone the privilege of not facing the criminal process um, while they're serving in office. And then when they're out of office, say, ha ha, too late. Um, that just makes no sense whatsoever. And, and you know, that's that's not a good legal argument. That, that makes a lot of sense to me, too, Neil. But just so we're clear for the listeners, because they have they don't have the same context that you and I do. This has never come up before. And so this isn't something that a court has already decided. Uh, you, the point I think you're making is somebody who's very experienced dealing with, the, you know, in arguing cases before the Supreme Court and other courts of appeals, you know, how you believe a court would um, would examine that issue. Right. Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. There is not precedent on this because presidents don't do this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, so you're right. I can't point to a case. I can just point to the most elemental, basic logic of our legal system. And that is what President Trump has been flouting. And, and also, I, I also want to ask you a question because I think it's interesting to me and I want to help put it in context for the listeners. You know, it's interesting to hear the arguments that you made about the effect an indictment would have on a president and the effect a trial might have on a president. You know, a lot of things that my, one way that my listeners are used to or they think of law as being something you look up in a book, that there's some code book. And often there is the United States Code. They'll see me cite various things in the United States Code um, and they'll say, well, this is the law is because, you know, Renato gave us this, this link that we can look at. And it says that. Um, but it's actually more complicated than that. Um, and in this case, you seem to be making there, there's the policy arguments. And can you explain to can you explain to people where all of this comes from and why it's the law? Yeah, well, the law by its own nature, by the very fact it's a law, can't comprehend and have every situation in it. If it did, it would just be millions and millions of pages long. And you don't actually want that because you want to have some room for judgment, for some human decision making, you know, which is why we have, you know, judges as judges and jurors as jurors. And we don't have robots or something like that. It's not an automated process for good reason. So you want to have some room for judgment, some room for policy. And here, 
you know, our founders didn't specify could a sitting president be indicted or not. You have to interpolate that from various principles. You know, one principle, no president should be above the law. But another important principle is that, oh, the nation votes for uh, or against, you know, a president. And it makes that person, unlike any other government official, and pretty much indispensable in terms of governance. And so, you know, how do you reconcile those? And that is, you know, the subject of you know, so many law classes on the indeed the entire field of constitutional law. So, you know, I think that there are pretty good reasons why the law doesn't specify every circumstance. And what happens instead is precedent is generated as cases evolve, as cases come, new cases and new situations present themselves, judges write opinions about that. And the thing about Donald Trump is he is not constrained by the ordinary norms of behavior that bind prior presidents or even prior, you know, just law-abiding citizens of the United States. So he's constantly testing the boundaries and creating new cases, cases that the law hasn't confronted before. But just because it's the first time doesn't mean he gets a get-out-of-jail-free card or anything like that. It just means it's the first time and you got to look to the principles and figure out what's going on. And I am convinced that on several of these fronts, his lawyers' front arguments, like the statute of limitations one, which actually makes no sense when you think about it, that a president can say there's a statute of limitations and also simultaneously say you can't indict a sitting president. Um, that would give the president you know, a total get-out-of-jail-free card, and that is not what our constitutional system is about. We don't say, oh, you won the presidency, congratulations, now here's your permanent get-out-of-jail-free card. We hold our presidents to the same standards as we hold you and me. So much of this feels like watching a snake eat itself. I um, have to say that we're talking about a president who will possibly be running for re-election while he's under indictment which is absolutely surreal. And there are people who want to know on uh, Renato's Twitter feed, so a sitting president can't be indicted, but what if the president was elected by unconstitutional or lawless means? And the fact that the way in which he got elected is the crime that he committed. I mean, people are losing their minds over this, you guys. Yes. I mean, a core kind of question about the allegations yesterday, and, you know, it's in the Southern District memo, is, you know, Donald Trump might have been elected by cheating. And that's why he has the president right now. And that is a remarkable thing. It'll be even more remarkable if his campaign in 2020, if there is one, um, and if he is still the president and decides to run, is, you know, vote for me so to keep me out of jail, um, you know, because that's effectively, you know, the best card he's got right now to avoid, um, uh, you know, this big criminal investigation. Yeah, people really want consequences. I think that you both believe that that's really what's making people. I mean, you see the, the the posts on your feed. You can see that people just want something. They want consequences, and they may never see it. Well, I, I will tell you one reason why I was eager to have Neil on the podcast is I do read all of your comments and questions, and so many people were asking about this, and I wanted somebody who had the expertise and experience to really delve into this constitutional issue of you know, whether presidents can be indicted and, and some of the statute of limitations issues we've already discussed, because the question that I get from everyone is, well, what can happen? And, you know, if it, if it comes down to um, impeachment, I think everyone understands that that would require 20 Republican senators to join all of the uh, 
uh, Democrats uh, to, to convict. And that is, uh, you know, a dicey proposition for things, that, you know, reasons that are probably beyond your my core areas of expertise. But for the bottom line is, it's hard to imagine that happening. And so people are interested in, I think, these questions quite a bit. Right. So I would say, you know, um, you know, I've generally been someone who doesn't believe in impeachment of presidents unless you absolutely have to do it. And we might be coming to the point where you absolutely have to do it. Um, you know, it's looking like very serious offenses, offenses that go to the heart of how he actually got the presidency in the first place, things in which he may be compromised by the Russian government and the like. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all if there is a very serious investigation by the House of Representatives um, that it un uncovers more damaging information and leads, you know, civic minded people on both sides of the aisle to say enough is enough. So that's one possibility. But I think another possibility is this. We've been talking about the fact that even with the president's, you know, poppycock statute of limitations argument, he is facing a criminal indictment uh, in 2021 when he leaves office um, if he doesn't win. And he's got to know that there's a chance he's not going to win. Um, and Donald Trump is better than anyone at thinking about his self-preservation. Um, and there may be a deal that has to be thought about in the works um, for him leaving office in exchange for not having to go to jail. Um, you know, these are all possibilities now that, um, you know, we used to think about in terms of fiction, um, but that Donald Trump has made part of what very well may be our reality for the future. I will say, it, you know, there was, of course, the the famous case of Nixon stepping down and being pardoned by Ford. I don't know whether there was any discussion beforehand between the two men about that. Uh, but one could imagine Trump stepping down and Pence pardoning him, whether there's a deal there or not. Exactly. So there's lots of different possibilities for the, for that to happen. I mean, you know, the president who is, you know, not um, shy about thinking he's got every constitutional power in the world that King George III had, you know, I suppose he probably thinks he can pardon himself. Um, and I think that most constitutional scholars think is, is not right. Um, that kind of a core Anglo-American principle is that, you know, going back to Dr. Bonham's case in 1607, is that uh, no person can be a judge in their own case. And that's effectively what a self-pardon would do. Um, so, uh, there's a great uh, law journal note about this called Pardon Me by Brian Colt. <laughs> wow. Now, I, I actually thought about this, and I know some of the, the followers on Twitter also wanted to know, what can uh, Whitaker do to Mueller's investigation? So, you know, Whitaker, in my judgment, um, you know, and I've written a fair amount about this, is I think a fake attorney general. I mean, I think he was put in there because Trump hoped that by putting in a loyalist lackey, um, someone who is effectively a constitutional nobody, who the Senate hasn't confirmed, he can induce uh, to do uh, Trump's own bidding. Um, and it's unclear right now, which is astounding to me, and I know, Renato, you and I have both spoken about this, um, that, uh, that uh, you know, the Justice Department has still not told us 
is Whitaker actually overseeing the investigation or not? There's a deep question as to whether he can because of all of his public statements against Mueller on CNN and other places against the Russia investigation and the like. Um, and so there is, we know, an ethics office um, a, uh, a request about this, but still now Whitaker has been the acting attorney general for four weeks. We don't know whether he's overseeing the Mueller investigation or not. Um, the special counsel regulations, which give Mueller his power, um, do say that the acting attorney general does have supervisory authority over the investigation. And so Whitaker does have immense powers if he truly is the acting attorney general. I don't think he is, both constitutionally and perhaps even ethically. If he had those immense powers, would that mean he could also read the unredacted filings and then share that information with the president? Um, it is possible that he could read them, sharing them with the president. But, you know, I think there's maybe grand jury 6E information in there and maybe other sensitive information that couldn't be shared. Um, you know, there may be some kind of deep constitutional questions of whether a president could see 6E material in other cases, but to see it in his own case does strike me as a real uh, deep problem. Um, but, you know, uh, Whitaker, you know, this is not exactly Oliver Wendell Holmes, who uh, was uh, was uh, installed as the acting attorney general. So, you know, Whitaker may just do the president's bidding here. Uh, one thing I will say, you know, Neil raised this very important point that we don't even know, you know, Whitaker had said that he was um, going to seek ethics review we the Justice Department refused to confirm whether he had sought it or what their conclusions were, and of course, as as Neil said, whether or not they were, um, whether or not they were, um, uh, you know, whether or not he still he is in fact supervising the Mueller investigation. And you know, just yesterday, the Washington Post came out with a story saying he had sought ethics review. Uh, I can, can I can confirm that separately through another source that he did seek ethics review. They've done an ethics review. They have a um, you know, they have come to a conclusion. I don't know what that conclusion is. The Washington Post didn't know either. Um, but one thing that I, one implication that that I draw from that is one thing is possible is that there was an ethics review that said Whitaker could not oversee the Mueller investigation. And the reason they're being so secret squirrel about it is that if Trump found out that this guy that he installed is actually recused from overseeing Mueller, he would literally flip out and be very angry. And so potentially maybe, that's what's going on. Maybe, but the ends don't justify the means. I mean, we live in a democracy, and the most important right we have as Americans is to know who are our governors. And here, the question here is immense. We're talking about who is the attorney general supervising the most consequential investigation at the Justice Department right now, in one of the most consequential investigations in the history of the United States. And we actually don't know who is at the helm. That is beyond irresponsible. It's the, it is at the heart of the dagger, a dagger at the heart of what our constitutional system is all about. I completely agree, Neil. Uh, and just to be crystal clear, my comments about what they're doing doesn't suggest I didn't mean to suggest that's what they should be doing. But one thing I find you know interesting about this entire administration is you have people keeping things from the president. Uh, and, you know, we, we had these, you know, obviously these reports earlier where people are literally stealing things off his desk to keep him from signing them or reading them. Uh, you know, th this administration does not operate in any uh, way. 
um, you know, like what we would expect a, an administration to operate in this country. Uh, you know, th- those actions of, you know, stealing things off his desk or not telling the president things, to, you know, that struck me as highly problematic from perspective of a dem- you know, a democracy where this man was elected to be the president, not any of these staffers. Uh, here, it's a similar sort of thing. Like, let's hide the truth, not only from uh, the American people, but from their elected leader. Uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, you know, and I, I think, unfortunately, one of the things that's happened is that the president likes to surround himself with people who don't play by the rules. And um, and that culture, you know, and, and they're reinforced by the president's own behavior of not playing by the rules. And, you know, it's really the opposite of what I saw when I would, had the privilege of being in the Obama administration, which was you know, he was straighter than an arrow and it caused you to stand up straighter as an arrow every time you could. Um, and, you know, when you contrast the, you know, number of people who've had to lawyer up at the Trump White House with what happened in the Obama White House, where I don't know a single person who had a lawyer, um, no investigations in the eight years there, um, despite having, you know, Republicans uh, controlling Congress and the like. Um, you know, it's, it was a very, very different um, feel to the thing. And, you know, that it breaks my heart to to think that, you know, the White House, this storied um, place that's, you know, served, you know, Reagan has served in and the Bushes and, you know, Kennedy and people like that is now really, you know, um, a place where um, something that really does look like uh, comes from television is uh, is is uh, taking place. I want to ask you guys one last question. Uh, this is from somebody who, you know, appreciates all the information that you both share. And they want to know what original documents should an informed reader seek out, which indictments, which plea deals. That is to be read in the original rather than via news accounts. Do you have advice? I would read two things. I would read the Flynn sentencing memo from last week and then the 30-page document filed by the Southern District prosecutors yesterday. I think those two will give um, the uh, questioner a really good sense of what's going on in the investigation. Not a perfect one, because as we've talked about, Mueller has redacted a lot with respect to the Russia investigation. But at this point, those are the two primary source documents that I would look to. You know, speaking of giving us context as to what's going on, uh, this has been an amazing discussion, Neil. Uh, I have learned uh, quite a bit from listening to you. I know everyone else uh, who's listening to this podcast has done the same thing. Thanks for joining us again. I really appreciate it. It is remarkable. Thank you. Total privilege. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.